0: Go ahead and get started then. And our lesson, as we walk through the journey of the New Testament, today we come to the book of Revelation. Before we begin, Father, thank you for the time we have to be in the Word. Thank you for the truth that you have shown us in the Word. And thank you for the journey that you have led us on. Thank you for the gift that is each book in the New Testament. Thank you for how it helps us form our thinking about who Jesus is, about what your plan is, about what the Christian life looks like, about what the church is. And we pray that even as we approach the end of this time together in this course, it will be but the beginning of just an ongoing season of study and learning how these pieces fit together and then growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we study today, Father, lead us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we look at the state of the world today, I think we all agree that there's a lot of problems. We can name it. Wars, famines, political oppression, persecution, injustice, terrorism. And that's really the history of the church. The church has had to endure those kind of things for 20 centuries. The church has never been exempt from the problems that take place in the world. Um, If you study the history of the church, it is often... The church who are the recipients of persecution, of oppression, of violence. Um, For all of the great progress that has been made in the realm of science and medicine and food security and, and other things, the 20th century still remains the bloodiest in the history of the church. More Christians were martyred for their faith in the 20th century than all the previous 19th centuries combined. In the 21st century, it set itself up to be worse. Now, on the one hand, that could discourage us, but it shouldn't, because what that means is the church is larger than it's ever been before. The church is growing at a pace today that has rarely seen in the history of the church in parts of Asia and the Middle East and South America. And where the church is waning in England and in North America, that does not mean that the church is somehow waning across the world. Uh, Christ promises to build His church, but Christians have always had this question: Well, what do we do in the midst of the conflict and persecution? Is God really in control? What are we to do when we face evil governments and evil governors and violent cultures? The things that like questions are not. Those questions are not new. The earliest believers faced these very questions. You look at 1 Peter a few weeks ago. The whole book was, do not be surprised if you're suffering persecution because you're a Christian. Here's how to respond accordingly. Well, the church of the first century was facing persecution, and it started in different areas. It lasted for a season, a little broader. But the Roman emperor became more and more wicked. So, go ahead and turn that on. And there was even, I guess had and there was something where they had the worship of the emperor or the cult of the emperor. And historians debate a little bit about when it actually started, but it seems to have started in the middle of the first century where every citizen of Rome was required to offer a pinch of incense on the altar and the smoke and the, the scent and the flames would go up and that would be a way of acknowledging that um, Caesar Kairos. Caesar is Lord. Okay? And you see that in the the book of Philippians. Where where Paul says, "We we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we have one Lord. Jesus Kairos. Jesus is Lord. Okay? And so Christians would face this temptation. And there was different ways that Christians faced it. But John the Apostle... Was exiled for his faith. Now we already saw in First, Second, and Third John that John was called the Elder. He was the last surviving apostle, and he wrote those three letters, like he did the Fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, and he wrote the Book of the Revelation. And he's an exile. And as he's looking on his island of Patmos, on the island of Patmos, he can look across the the strait that is there and look into what we know as Turkey, Asia Minor. And if you look at how he wrote the letters, he just writes in order to the churches that would have been there, scattered in Asia Minor. He wants to write a letter to the churches there, how to respond in the midst of persecution and give them hope that God is in control. And that's what the book of Revelation, at least, was primarily written as its initial reason for being written, was to encourage first century believers who were facing persecution and how to endure persecution. The book of Revelation is one of those books that is just full of challenges for us, in large measure because the different schools of thought and interpretation agree that to some degree it's talking about history, and to some degree it's talking about the future. They just can't agree on where you draw the lines. Okay? And so we start with that as our starting point because I want us to recognize that there are in the history of the church, including the church today, good brothers and sisters in Christ who do not hold the same view on the book of Revelation. And so we don't want that to become then a source of division when it was intended to be a source of encouragement to a church that is facing persecution. Okay? That does not mean we shouldn't have our opinions. That does not mean we shouldn't have our convictions. That does not mean, as Paul says, we shouldn't be convinced in our own minds. But even when he writes the church in Rome, Paul says, Let each man be convinced in his own mind, but work together to keep the unity in the Spirit. Okay? Yeah? yeah. It's not just about the persecution of the church. It's also about disciplining and or enlightening some of their great failings. Yes. Yes, and we'll get to that when we look at the actual letters that were written to three churches. And that's why we may take a few weeks to go through Revelation, because particularly in the seven letters to the seven churches, there are things that are just so valuable for us today, and we want to look at them and what God teaches. So, the other thing is that there are images in the book of Revelation that very clearly point to first century Rome, and what was going on in the Roman Empire. But there are others that clearly point to promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. And so I'm convinced that the better we understand the Old Testament and the imagery and the symbols and the prophecies and what the prophets were saying, the better we will understand the book of Revelation. It's not often in the book of Revelation where it says, and thus said the prophet Ezekiel, for example. But... There are over 1,900 allusions, uh, hints, and references to images coming out of the Old Testament. John the Apostle was saturated in the Word of God and uses imagery from all of the prophets of the Old Testament, from even the covenants. And so there's 1,900 references or allusions to things going on in the Old Testament And so if we detach the Book of Revelation from the Old Testament, we lose a lot. Okay? And if we detach the overall overarching story of biblical theology from the Book of Revelation, we miss out on a lot as well. The overarching story is what? Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's the overarching story of the Bible. That there was creation, perfect, in the garden, unbroken fellowship, and then there was the fall. And the fall had a dramatic impact on man and his relationship with God, man and his relationship with one another, and man and his relationship with creation. And so from the fall, then the storyline moves forward to how God is redeeming And the New Testament makes it clear that all that was lost in Adam is going to be redeemed and restored in Christ. And so redemption then is that third major movement. And the fourth one is consummation. The new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. No sin. Earth and heaven are as one. No need for a temple. No need for lights because God is the light. And all of creation now has become a temple. And approaching God, so that's the four major movements in all biblical theology from beginning to end. So then, where does the Gospel of John fit in? Where does the Book of Isaiah fit in? And where does the Book of Revelation fit in? And so Christians have these delightful and sometimes quite heated arguments about how Revelation fits in. And if we're not careful, we miss the point. We miss the main point. Okay, so. There's a lot of visions, there's a lot of images, but what is clear is that Jesus Christ is our victor, Jesus Christ will win, and will be vindicated, and however we understand say chapters 4 to 19, however we understand chapter 20... All views must move forward to chapters 21 and 22, which is the new heavens and the new earth, and that's where we will be forever. Okay? In the new heavens and the new earth. And so when I read Revelation 21 and 22, I just get excited about how all these prophecies come together. And this is going to be this glorious, uh, unhindered fellowship with the Lord and His people forever. Okay? So, this is just all by way of background. um, What was going on in the first century? It'll help us understand some of what John is writing, particularly as he writes to the seven churches. The Romans were polytheists. They had gods and goddesses all over the place. They had a god of this and a goddess of that. And and they had these pantheons and the hierarchies of what gods and goddesses were over which gods and goddesses. And so it was in that context that the church is preaching the gospel. And what's interesting is because Christians refuse to worship those gods, because they are called in the book of Revelation to worship the one true God who was and is and is, and is to come, that they persecute. And so one early, early story comes from the life of Polycarp, who was an elder statesman of the church. He was a disciple of um, John, second generation removed from the, God, the, the apostle John he was dragged before the emperor and told that he needed to renounce his faith or at least acknowledge the Caesar he's 86 years old a very dramatic statement he says 86 years my savior has never betrayed me and now you would that I would betray him now and he goes on and on and This man he doesn't want to kill this old man he respects him. He says, well, just, just do a little. He says, I can't do a little because that would be giving up the whole thing. He says, well, at least say away with the atheists. Well, the persecutors' mind, the atheists were the Christians. Yeah. Because they didn't worship these other gods. So they were the atheists. So Polycarp, he's a man of God. He says, okay, he points to the crowds, he says, away with the atheists. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Because he knows that they're not worshipping the one true God, so they're the true atheists. And he was martyred for his faith. And it's this amazing story of perseverance. And so it's, in those type of situations that John is originally writing to the church in the first century, saying, you're the persecuted. You're already being persecuted. But hold fast. Christ. Is our victory? Christ has defeated the enemies, and Christ will return in great glory and will judge the living and the dead. That's came from heaven. That's from the Nicene Creed that came out of the fourth century. Okay. So we have this discussion, and, and I don't want it to get too academic, but it is important for us to understand what do we mean when we talk about the Book of Revelation. Many of us have heard the term apocalyptic, right? Apocalyptic. When you hear the word apocalyptic, what do you think? End times. War. Okay, end times. War. War. Cataclysmic. Cataclysmic, okay. Um, we associate apocalyptic with end times, but in fact the word apocalyptic just means times of great rupture or intervention of God. Hmm. And so, and in that sense, then there were apocalyptic events even before the first coming of Christ and before the second coming of Christ. So, in your notes, I look at, um, I, I tell you what 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 makes something apocalyptic writing. <clears throat> so, the problem was, is Christians, the the the, twine, the, the men that God chose to record the twenty seven books of the New Testament, were not the only ones writing letters and books. There were many others that were trying to fill in the gaps and and give presentations of Christ that were contrary to the scriptures. And so those books were out there. We talked about two of them last week. We talked about the book of Jude, two books of the Apocrypha that have actually appeared, at least quotations from those books, that appeared in the book of Jude. Okay? So there was these other writings that were going on. So I give you a list of what does it mean to be apocalyptic? It means to be eschatological eschatological is eschatos, it means last things, okay? But what it really means is this great intervention of God. And why why is there a hope of a great intervention of God? Because things look really bad. There's persecution, there's difficulty, there's struggles. And so people of God are crying out, will God do something? And so eschatological writing come along and say... There's certainty in the midst of suffering because there's God who will intervene in a great victory. Okay? Apocalyptic writings tend to be dualistic. There's a clash between the evil present age and the glorious age to become. Uh, the term dualistic writings tend to be very pessimistic about the current world, current age. Okay. Uh, there's a, a high degree of determinism, which is just state an emphasis on God's sovereignty. That God is in control and is moving history <clears throat> towards a certain goal. So that brings assurance in that nothing is outside of God's control. There's a lot of symbolism. <laughs> and, and boy, if the book of Revelation is anything. It's full of symbolism. Powerful images, symbols, visions um, that... While they're not always meant to be taken quote unquote literally, they point to true truths. They point to truths. Okay? Um, And we can talk a little bit about what does it mean to interpret things literally, and that's a discussion we can have the interpretation of the Bible. But no matter what school of thought you come from, there are certain things you look at in Revelation and say, yes, that is quote unquote literal, and yes, that is quote unquote symbolic. And you have to have that framework, otherwise you end up with some really odd interpretations of things. Okay? Uh, And so it it doesn't mean one is more biblical than the other. It means they have a different understanding of what how much to push one thing towards a literal, almost wooden interpretation, or those that interpret it towards the larger picture of the, the spiritual pointing to something that is absolutely true. Okay? For example. We say that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. We do not literally mean that he has horns and fur and a little tail and paws, right? The Lamb is the symbolic, powerful language of what he has done, okay? I think we all agree on that as the Lamb of God. Okay, and, then, and yet we, we know it's talking about Jesus. And it was the Lamb who is victorious. It's the Lamb who overcomes by sacrifice. It is the Lamb who destroys His enemies. Okay? Right, so we, we, we know there's symbolic language. There's hidden language. There's dreams. So all that to say, this is generally apocalyptic writing. And there was a lot of it. Between the time when the book of Malachi went silent in 400 B.C., To the time of the book of Revelation, about 200 years after Christ. Mm -hmm. So, in that 600 year period, people were trying to fill the gap. What's God doing? And there was a lot of apocalyptic writing that arose during that time. So, is Revelation apocalyptic? I would say yes and no. Okay? Yes and no. Um, It has apocalyptic features. Okay? But but John himself says it is very prophesying. And the word exhortation and encouraging you to show up. And there's definitely strong theological teaching. So I wouldn't get too hook, caught up on that particular um, phrase. Oh, and another thing about apocalyptic writing was didn't who the author was. But John tells us he's the author, right? And he claims to be writing prophecy. And he's talking about living in the present days. How do you handle? persecution to what is happening now. The book had to have meant something to first century Christians living under the Roman Empire, or much of it doesn't make sense. It had to have been a book of encouragement to them that were facing real persecution. Okay? So, there had to have been at least some part of it that's rooted in actual historical events. And all people will agree on that it's just how far into Revelation do you go where you start moving towards the future? Okay? And that's where the fun is. <laughs> can I just say one thing? Yes. So I can concentrate on thinking it. I drove to LA and back listening to studies on Revelation. I've gone, had Bible studies in Southern California. I do not get Revelation in, in as much as I studied it. I, it's, so I'm just saying, it's tough for me. Yes. It, and, and it has been for 20 centuries for the church. And it's one of those books that if you pick up, and, and, and I can name authors, and we will do that when we get to the different schools of interpretation. And you'll recognize these authors as good and godly men. For me anyway, that gives me a, a pause, and at least I have a hermeneutic of the That if in fact I disagree with Dr. So-and-so, I at least know why, without it turning into a personal combat where I have to defeat him or defeat that view. Because probably on 99 of 100 other things, I agree with them. So why, why set up the stakes and the tents and divide at that point? Okay? Um, but there's also a sense, and this is where the confusion comes in, we long for certainty. Right? <laughs> We long for exactness. We long for uh, a level of assurance and confidence that we know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Because at a certain level, knowledge is power, right? Mm -hmm. And so we think if we have knowledge, we have power. That's a dangerous path to go down. Mm -hmm. Okay? And then we start holding that knowledge over against other believers as if somehow we have secret knowledge that they don't have, or somehow we're super spiritual and they're not. And then we fall into the error of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, the Greek word for gnosis, it means knowledge. Um, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you pretend as though you did not? It's all given by grace and then he tells the church in Corinth knowledge puffs up but love builds on it okay so I have to confess that my own view on different aspects of Revelation has changed over the course of Um, because I was forced to encounter things that I couldn't answer in the view that I was holding at the time and so I had to hold it a little looser than I did before, see some other things and say, wow, maybe it could be this. But there are certain things that I'm absolutely sure about. Revelation 19 talks about the glorious Christ coming back and slaying His enemies because He is the victorious word of God. I long for that day. And it will come. Okay? And, and that's my hope. And my hope then is that, also, that very clear, there is the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation twenty-one and twenty-two. I am going to be in the Lord's presence without any hindrance, without any stain, without any sin whatsoever in every aspect of my being and in every aspect of all creation. So practically, what that means to me is a peace of God, eternally. No hindrances in my relationship with Him. But beyond that, there'll be no hindrances to my relationship to creation. I'll work forever. We will all work throughout eternity. That's, that's our created position. Without hindrance. And so work will become in the eternal state, what it is meant to be here, which is an act of worship and proclamation. And we'll do that all throughout eternity. Without hindrance. At peace with creation. Okay? Okay. That sounds pretty good to me. I'll take the next step. We'll be at peace with each other. You know, all the silly and vain things that we fight over and our turf wars and our... We're really dumb. All (laughs) things, right? We really are. Our our pride gets way out ahead of our knowledge most of the time. That'll be gone. Now we have unhindered fellowship with one another. When I was 19, I thought heaven sounded boring. <laughs> now I think it sounds like the greatest thing. I can't wait to get there. The new heavens and the new earth. No weaknesses whatsoever. No barriers. No veils. No weakness. Okay? That's what we have to do for. We keep that in mind. Let's have our wonderful discussions on the book of Revelation. Let's agree and disagree and not be disagreeable. Okay? Because of the fundamentals we agree, right? Okay. That was a free sermon, by the way. So may I ask? Yes. In the beginning, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes. Does he mean Christ is being revealed to us, or is Christ revealed to us? Yes. That yeah, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's the wonderful kind of ambiguity of Greek. Yes, it is actually Jesus revealing to us about himself, but it's also He's being revealed. So he's doing the revealing, but he is the one being revealed. Okay? It's both. And how if we look at this the imagery in chapter one with this one that I mean so John was a genius. He was a literary genius. He wrote with a simplicity but also with depth that is just as marveled scholars for 20 centuries. But in the book of Revelation, John violates several times the laws of grammar. Mm. Because he's inventing words. The words that were not known before in the Greek language. He is, as he gets these visions of who Christ is, he's straining to describe what he is seeing. And, and he's just uh, he's pushing the language to the limit. Which makes sense when you're trying to describe God. Every language is limited, okay? Um, so, let's get to what we're really trying to keep in mind, and that is uh, the dates. The dates. I've talked a lot about the dates. Part of it depends on what you think the book was written for, okay? And when it was written. There are some scholars who hold that it hadn't been written in the 60s. There are some who hold that it hadn't been written in the 90s. Part of it depends on what they bring to the book. so what they bring away from the book. So, I'm going to go a little bit out of order from my notes so that I follow your notes. Okay? We'll go a little bit of that. Gospel of John. Was he writing under the reign of Nero? Or was he writing under the reign of Domitian? You'll find good arguments for both. What's the difference? Well, Nero was known as the beast in other languages at that time. So that's at least one argument for it being written in the 60s. There's no mention of the fall of Jerusalem. There's no mention of the fall and the destruction of the temple. So that's another argument that it was written in the 60s. However, it could also apply to the reign of, of the emperor Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96 AD, who persecuted the church, who had the cult of the emperor. um, And it fits within that timeline as well. Is there anything gain or loss? Well, I've given you some evidence uh, in favor of different dates, at least in your written notes. Um, I, I think it's more in the 90s is likely when it was written, so this would have been the last letter that John would have written. Um... And there's some historical evidence, particularly if you look down at number three on the bottom of page 79, it says in Revelation 3, the city of Laodicea is described as being rich. But the city was destroyed almost completely by an earthquake in 6061. So it would have been hard for it to rebuild and be rich within just a <laughs> few years. But 30 years later, it would fit a city that had been rebuilt and there was lots of riches. Just one argument. As I talk to someone like a Dr. R.C. Sproul, he will present all kind of evidence for why was written in the 60s. Okay? So just to let you know that there is some uh, disagreement among believers. Um, we know where it's written, the Isle of Patmos. I don't have a map, I don't think, to show you what Patmos is, but you probably have a map in your Bible where you can just look at the uh, Asia Minor and find where the island of Patmos is. But it's just on the, I guess, looking southwestern edge. Of Asia Minor. I, I guess I should have put a slide up showing where it is, but you'll be able to Google it and find it. In my own life, I've had the privilege of going to two of the seven cities mm-hmm. and seeing the ruins of the early temples and and get a better idea of the message that would have been written to those cities. But that's not germane to what we understand when it was written. Okay. There's a general structure that goes on in the book, and I want you to notice one key phrase there. In chapter one, we have an, in chapter four, verse one, we have an expression, "Come and see." In chapter seventeen, there's another expression, "Come and see." In chapter twenty-one, "Come and see." And there's three definite movements in the book of Revelation concerning the "Come and see." That's one possible way of getting the structure uh, of. Jesus, as he is revealing what is to come, is inviting John in to see what it is that he's going to do. Okay? You have, all throughout the book of Revelation, you have contrasts. Contrasts between light and darkness, between good and evil. So you have, you have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you have the fake or false Trinity of right? the beast, the false prophets, and the antichrist. You have the bride of Christ who is the church contrasted with the whore of Babylon that is the, all that opposes the things of God. You have good kings that are referred to or at least references to kings that have risen uh, and bad kings. You have references to the resurrection of Christ and a seeming resurrection of one of the the beasts or one of the false prophets. So, you see, Satan as the great counterfeiter all throughout the book of Revelation. You have the mark of the beasts contrasted with the seal of the spirit. Those that are clearly in the spirit of God, those are the people of God, those that are in opposition to God. Okay. So, if we keep the bigger picture in mind, some of the details maybe aren't as important because we're looking at what is, the, what is what's going on. You have the beasts that come out of the sea, and in Revelation twenty one, the sea was no longer. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's going on here? Is there no water in the new heavens and the new earth, or does the sea represent something very powerful? People, okay. Well, the sea actually, in most of Old Testament, represents its place of darkness and death and mystery and destruction. And when you get to the new heavens, there's no longer any sea. That means there's no longer any place from where destruction and death and enemies can come. Forget about water. It's symbolizing something very important. Okay? So when you see these contrasts, okay, it helps us to at least well, gain a larger vision of what, what John is trying to communicate. Um, <laughs> this is this walking us through. This would be a very faint outline if I were to preach through the book of Revelation, which I had no plans to do in the immediate future. I'm going to be in Matthew for probably at least in a year and a half. Okay? And if we're still around in a year and a half, what's, what's, what's going to happen? I mean, only the Lord knows our day, right? I'm just so excited about what I'm learning in Matthew when i to holding together that I'm content to stay there for a while. Um, but... The number seven is important in the book of Revelation. Trumpets and judgments and bowls are important in the, the book of Revelation. Uh, imagery of destruction, imagery of judgment. Is it all happening in a linear fashion or is it happening in kind of an echo fashion where John tells the story and ends the same way with the victory of the Lamb. And he tells it again and amplifies and ends with the victory of the Lamb. And there's these different... Uh, levels. That's one school of interpretation of the book. Okay? Um, the, there's a reason why people have come down on these different issues, because they have taken the time to study. So we have our hermeneutic of humility. Okay? But what are some of the major themes that we can agree on? And I'm going to try to finish some of that today, and the next week, Lord, we'll finish the major themes, and then we'll begin to look at what are some of the structures for interpreting the book. And then I anticipate we'll probably have one more week where we can look at what's in the seven letters. Briefly, look at how can that help us today, okay? You're not in a hurry, right? You don't want to get over with the class. We can take your time, okay. So, one of the main themes is the, the sovereignty of God. Um, and why would that be important? What's the context? Why would this truth be important to those early believers and the believers all after time? God is directing all of it in His own counsel. Yes. Yes. Wonderfully said. He sees the picture from the beginning to the end. And if we want to know the beginning from the end, why don't you let Him tell us? (laughs) Okay. Um, If we are in Christ, this book was written to to, uh, assure us that we are secure in Christ. That this Lamb who died to redeem men out of every tribe and language and nation and tongue, is able to keep to preserve his own and will and give them ultimate victory. It's it's meant to assure that that he is not only the the one who is, who was, and is, and is to come chapter 1 verse 4, he is the creator of all things, chapter 4 he is the judge who sits on the throne. 46 references to the throne in the book of Revelation. And so if we're in the midst of persecution, if you today are living in the country of Nigeria, in the northern half of the country, if you are living in parts of Egypt, if you are living in Afghanistan, if you're living in Pakistan, it is music to your ears that 46 times Jesus is sitting on the throne and is taking care of the persecuted church. Right? You can see how that is an encouragement to us today. Um... He's no, called have to be in Nigeria right now. But the United States is messed up. Yeah, but we're not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. I mean, there's, there's bad things that are going on, but the way isn't outside. That's sword. Correct. Okay. Titles that that either God the Father or the Lamb are given include the Alpha and the Omega. In fact, both the Father and the Son are referred to as the Alpha and Omega in the Book of Revelation. The of Jesus as divine the and They're the first and the last. They're the, the almighty. Um, numerous times that God's clearly said to be in control of all things. I think we even have references to the Trinity in symbol in symbolic form uh, throughout the book of Revelation. Especially as we know the Old Testament more and more. That's why I plead with us to know the, the Old Testament more and more. So, we have references into God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Church, in contrast to the false trinity and the the, the evil ones that are opposing all that is of God. It's good for us to affirm the fact that God is in control. So no matter what we're facing, it might not be politics. It might be a health challenge. It might be a financial challenge. It might be a relational challenge. Um, some type of illness. know that God is sovereign. Gives us a different perspective to look at and to go through. Okay? Um, it may be that the Lord spares us from any type of persecution and difficulty. But if He chooses to allow it. Let's go through it knowing that we have the one who sits on the throne. And that He will win. And we live this long. <laughs> and eternity is forever. Okay. the psalmists say the Lord is my life and my salvation whom shall I fear revelation tells us this is the one that rules over all things what can man do to me one of the martyrs of the church said, they can kill us but they can't really hurt us right fear him Fear not the one who can kill the body who cannot kill the soul. But fear the one who can kill the body and afterwards throw the soul into hell. If we're in Christ, we don't have to fear that one. And because we're in that one, we don't have to fear the one who can really kill the body. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it would be not difficult. I'm just saying that ultimately it can't hurt us because we be in Christ. Paul says the live is Christ and to die is right? So it's called the sovereign one. We have the victory of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is, is God. He's seen as God in this book. He's given the same titles of God. In chapter 5, He's seen a city in the middle of the throne of God. Uh, I get chills thinking about it. Because he, he says, and then uh, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, the Lion of Judah is overcome and He turns and what does He behold? He beholds a Lamb, not a lion, a, la- a Lamb standing in the center of the throne of God. I love it. And it's that Jesus that begs us, come, pray. I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's the one who is victorious. He is the one that will return and be the judge over all of his enemies. Um, there are 30 references to Jesus as the Lamb in the New Testament. 29 of them in the Book of Revelation. Okay, Who is this Lamb? Okay, What does it mean to be in this Lamb? Um, this lamb was the conqueror. It's a weird type of lamb. He conquers through death. He overcomes sin. He shed his blood to purchase the redeemed. He's not just a suffering lamb, but a victorious lamb. And as a result, he's worshipped. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's going to be our song forever. We'll never get tired of seeing it. Because we'll be amazed that we'll be there. Only the saved will be able to understand that. I I, I mean, it's, to us, it's evident. Because yeah. Because we know that the lamb was sacrificed. Right. What about the end state? Yeah, I mean, we, we do see that whoever is under the judgment of God in the book of Revelation, what are they crying out? Oh! Trying to block us out. Oh, yeah. Fall on this rocks, fall on this cage. They want to hide. They don't want to face him in his holy wrath. Um, yeah, this is, this is real business. This, you know, we want to talk about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> and, and there's that aspect of where he was in his first coming. But in the second coming? <laughs> he comes with a sword riding on a horse and slaughtering his enemies. And it's vindicated and glorified. The saints even cry out, you are just in your judgments. You see, in our still not completely sinless nature, you know, we're still struggling with sin. Sometimes we we recoil. When we see Jesus face to face and see his judgments, there'll be no hesitation, you are just in all your judgments, so Lord you are good in all that you do. There'll be no hesitation on that part because we'll see clearly what we don't do now. But, uh, this is a Jesus that is to be adored and reverentially feared. Right? Okay? So, what I'd like to do is we'll stop here for today. I'll a good discussion on where we hope to go in the future with other classes. But when we come back next week, I want us to finish one of the main ideas and then we're going to look at what some of the ways of interpreting the book are. And I think you'll find it interesting then um, how uh, Christians throughout time have understood the book, all of them would agree that these are the main themes. And then that helps you understand your, how you put the book together, how you understand it. And now you'll have a better understanding of why you interpret it this way. And so we can affirm then that brothers like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul didn't interpret the same, and then, and yet John Piper interpreted it in a little bit different way. And you have the history of the reformers, and you have the history of the early church, and you have history helps us to understand why do they see this. Culture becomes a major piece in that as well. And so we can sit down and break bread with those we disagree with on this particular issue while affirm that we serve Almighty King. And that's a good place to be in maturity of how we struggle together to grow. So let me close out our time, pray us out of here, and we'll look forward to more time in this Word next week. Father, thank you that you beckon us to come. But because you are the creator and the redeemer and the judge, we don't always grasp everything that you're saying to us. So, Father, would you enlarge in our understanding and our capacity. But would you keep us in awe of you. That we'd be just overwhelmed by the majesty and the worthiness of the lamb that was slain. The one that we will worship throughout all eternity. Father, help us to have a greater grasp of his glory this week. Help us.